ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, good afternoon. Selena Green bringing you another Country Hour today. Another day and more reports of frost damage coming in, this time in crops in the southeast of the state. More on that in a moment. Also, the fire danger season has arrived or is very close to arriving for parts of South Australia. So a very timely reminder about your responsibility on farm to help prevent fires in the first place. Throughout the season, we'll be actually sending out uh, text messages to our, our grain producer list. Uh, and that won't be about saying, look, don't harvest now. It's, you know, you're over the GFDI. That's not where we're going with this. This is just an education campaign. That's also coming up. Don't forget, if you want to give me a call at any time throughout the program, my number is 1300 222 891 or send me a text to this number 0467 922 Well, first today, the current cold snap has proven troublesome for some in the southeast with reports of damage to lentils and some other of the later crops. Michael Hunt is a farmer at Kanawigra. He says the current frost conditions are some of the worst that he's seen at this time of the year. He told Elsie Adamo that as his crops were ahead of schedule, the wild weather hasn't impacted as much as it may have done in other years. Well, we had four frosts last week. We've just got a new weather station online and that's made it more stressful because we know exactly what happened. We had a minus 3.3, a minus 3.1, a minus 2.3 and a minus 1.9. Very rare to have it that late in October and I thought there'd be a lot of damage. But so far, 30% perhaps in lentils, just the late lentils and there's a few crops around the district that might be a bit later that... uh, we're impacted. The ones that got flooded out early um, with later crops might have a little bit of damage too. Right, so 30% is pretty significant. Are you worried that there might be a couple more cold snaps to come or will this be the worst of it, do you think? I'm sure that because it's a cold day today, it's windy if it is up tonight. I wouldn't mind betting we get another frost. But we have been very lucky that the season's probably running two or three weeks ahead of where it normally is. Uh, I think if we had wheat crops that had a bit more juice in the seeds instead of firming up, we would have had some significant damage. Uh, we have had complete wipeouts of wheat, sort of virtually you know, down to 100 kilos to the hectare. And it sort of felt like that could have been the case this year, but because it's been so early, we've got away with it a bit, bit I think. so. Right, so you don't think that uh, you're at risk of that happening this year now, that there'll be something at the end of the season? Uh, definitely. The barley's probably early enough through. Beans have got through, canola's through, but it's really only the lentils, the late pods on the lentils, and we've got a patch of irrigated wheat that I think might be a bit touched up. But to have such a cold snap um, and to get away with so little damage, we're very, very lucky. How much of an impact will losing that 30% have on, on your farm, Michael? Uh, not a lot. It's not a big area, and... Whilst we look at the pods now and there's 30% damage in them, the moisture that's in the plant might go to the other seed and just make that a bit bigger. So it could could come down to 20% damage or whatever. So it's not keeping me awake at night anyway. And is it, has it been one of the more difficult seasons weather-wise you've seen in quite a while? Uh, it's been interesting. The early, the June 
rain, we're on well-drained soil, so that was good. But uh, east of Bordertown, there was a lot of trouble getting on paddocks to, to do the operations they needed to, and some areas had to re-sow it. And, uh, and so those crops are later and might be affected. But, uh, yeah, it's been trying, but because of soil moisture from last year, I think we're going to get away with a pretty reasonable year still. And how far are you off getting some of your, your crops off? I wouldn't mind betting we have a look at a barley paddock next mid to the end of next week and canola's, we've got some canola dropped and beans desiccated so definitely by Monday week we'll, we should be having a go. Right, so you think that everyone will have what, a, a fairly average yielded year considering? I think we'll be average or probably slightly above um, in places. There'll be some crops that are below average but I think generally it'll keep us off the streets next year anyway. That's southeast farmer Michael Hunt there speaking with Elsie Adamo. And I just checked the uh, the Weather Bureau's page and it looks like the Keith Weather Station recording a minus two overnight temperature at Keith today again. So another very fresh start for that part of the state. Uh, well, while it might be a good thing in some cases to be considered a bright spark, Grain Producers SA are reminding farmers this harvest not to be. GPSA CEO Brad Perry says the Don't Be a Bright Spark campaign has been an effective reminder for grain producers' responsibilities on farm when it comes to the bushfire season. And he says with a drier summer predicted, they need everyone to be doing as much as they can to prevent fires. Yeah, so last year we launched the Don't Be a Bright Spark campaign initially. And what we've done is we've uh, just refreshed that campaign and launched it again. It's a, I think it's a really strong message. It's around the common sense. Um, of uh, harvest fire safety, um, you know, don't don't be a bright spark. So make sure that you are following the harvest code. If you've got any doubts, make sure you look that up. Um, you know, use your weather stations, use your, your kestrel. Uh, yeah, just don't be a bright spark. It's all about doing the right thing um, this harvest. As part of this campaign, what will GPSA be doing? Yeah, so we're going to be looking to uh, to be very proactive as we are every year, but. After, um, you know, we had strong advocacy around keeping uh, the, the GFDI at 35 or 2, so as as they have done uh, growers for the past decade or so, um, we want to make sure that we are as prepared on farm um, just in case of any uh, fire incidents. So throughout the season, we'll be actually sending out uh, text messages to our, our grain producer list, and that won't be about saying look, don't harvest now, It's you know, you're over the GFDI. That's not where we're going with this. This is just an education campaign. So we're going to be reminding all of our growers that, you know, check up on the grain harvesting code of practice and make sure you're adhering to it. And just a reminder to just continually do the right thing this harvest. What could they be putting at jeopardy if they do the wrong thing? It's particularly with, like you said, you've been doing a lot of work to, to be able to continue using the Grassland Fire Danger Index uh, measured at two metres. Oh, look, it. If you if you do the wrong thing and you do harvest outside the code, you, you're putting yourself at risk for a start. So you're putting your your farm at risk, you're putting yourself at risk, and then you're certainly putting um, others in the community at risk. If there's a, a fire on your property that gets out of hand in the wrong conditions, you know when, which it can, um, it can have uh, obviously devastating effects on on your farm, but also uh, others' community um, around you. So you know, really critical, particularly when it's becoming so dry over harvest that everyone does do the right thing and, and we should say too Brooke that a majority do do the right thing so 
and that's why we have such a fantastic system that we do have and, and that's why um, we continue to, to be really safe at harvest time but there's not a time to be complacent um, and I think a good example of this too was actually on the weekend I understand several areas, several farmers pulled up in areas because the GFDI did exceed the or got very close to the uh, 35 at two metres. Does it come down to other farmers, you know, speaking to other farmers, they see someone doing the wrong thing to, to pull them up as well on, on, you know, don't be a bright spot? Yeah, that's right. So I think where we need to, um, we need to really uh, remember to remind uh, grain producers is that, you know, GFDR 35 at two, um, you know, we don't want to be exceeding that at all. So once once we reach that or just before um, you need to stop harvesting if, if the local conditions say so on the ground. And certainly there's a lot of um, groups right across uh, South Australia where um, grain producers have a you know, text message group or a WhatsApp group where they'll send a message out to fellow farmers and say, look, this is what I'm measuring here. You know, make sure you check check your uh, measurements as well. So um, I think we, we do see that there is um, peer pressure and uh, good community education and information on the Grain Harvest Code out there, and, and we'll continue to see that. That is Grain Producers South Australia CEO Brad Perry, and he was speaking there to Brooke Nindorf. You're with Selena Green, and it is 14 minutes past 12. Well, Jeff Tazi oversees the retail operations of one of the world's largest suppliers of fertiliser. That's Nutrien. During a visit to Australia recently, Kath Sullivan asked him to reflect on the health of the farm sector, both here and globally. And the American said he was struck of the well, by the diversity of Australian farms, which often produce a range of commodities and the range of products they rely on agricultural supplies to provide. I remember the first time I came here in uh came here actually prospecting to see if we wanted, not if we wanted, but if, if we fit with Australian agriculture with our company. And if we did, how would we enter? And I, I can remember going in the, in the branches of the landmark business that we eventually bought. And I was amazed that they were selling dog biscuits and tea at that time. <laughs> and uh, it was really eye-opening for me. And uh, You're still selling tea bags? I think that we probably do have some. Maybe, maybe they tell me we don't, but I, I got a feeling if I really searched it out, we do have some uh, branches that are still selling tea. And I know we sell dog biscuits because I saw them in uh, some of our facilities earlier this week. Given that um, you're operating in so many different markets, um, can what's the sense that you get globally of how agriculture is travelling at the moment? Well, I think it's a um, it's an interesting time in agriculture you know every day we wake up and we have for the really the last three years where food security has been a a a cornerstone to a lot of the problems we're trying to solve for and uh we take for granted in a lot of these places here in australia and north america well because we have such availability of food that uh that that's not an issue while that on a global basis that's a real issue and so the problem that we're trying to solve for has a lot of purpose behind it. Also, we've been faced with supply chain issues, and I've talked about it just about with everyone that that I've met today at the conference. Everybody's interested in in that side of it. And so how do we solve for some of those issues? And a lot of these things were a series of events that occurred that uh, I call them black swan events. Uh, People might argue with me. I don't think I'm wrong on that, though. And... uh, and, and such, but if I look around agriculture today, it's it's a very competitive market. Uh, 
it's about efficiency and you gather that efficiency by being open to innovation and technology and uh that's going to be that's going to be a real key going forward in the future. You, you talk about the supply chain there, and it seemed that with the pandemic, the wheels, the cogs really clogged up a lot. How long is it going to take to get things back to the way they were, and will we do just in time again? I tell you, just in time is probably going to be a bit of a delay. It's going to take a little bit of time for everybody to kind of forget about what occurred over these last three years before I think just in time becomes a centerpiece again from that standpoint. I do feel like that the supply chain has eased up quite a bit, uh, especially over the last eight to 10 months. Uh, you know, if I'm in the Brazilian markets today, I might even I might even say that we have an oversupply situation there. Uh, the North American market has loosened up uh, quite a bit as well, and yet I'm careful how I say that in Australia because we just went through an event here where we had issues on shortages of urea. So it just it just serves to remind you every day that there's another challenge generally right around the corner. And so how do we keep ourselves flexible enough and how do we position ourselves where, again, we can service our growers with the inputs they need? I was interested in something you said off tape before about the Brazilian market and uh, you you had the sense that it was a very innovative farming sector there. That was because a lot of farmers haven't been in the industry long. Have I summed that up correctly? Yeah, it's not. In other words, you know, the gentleman we met with uh, earlier this week that we were on farm with, you know, he told me his family had been farming there, I think, since 1862, okay? So that's a lot of generational uh, farming done on that on that land. If you go into Brazil, you, you do find, like, it, even in the States today, it would be very difficult for a young man 21 years of age or a woman 21 years of age to wake up and say, I want to start farming tomorrow. That's a bit of a difference in Brazil. I, I talk to a lot of people that haven't been in agriculture for that many years. And uh, so maybe a little bit ease of entry into that. But what I find is those people that haven't been there as long sometimes are even a bit more open to new innovation and technology that's, that's coming. And so that's what I always challenge people on is don't ever shut your brain down on the innovation and technology side of it because we truly do compete in a global marketplace and we've got to gain efficiencies. We know that. And uh, if you're not gaining efficiencies today, you're going backwards. That's Jeff Tarzi there. He is the president of Global Retail with Nutrien. He was speaking there to Kath Sullivan in Canberra after visiting some farmers in southern New South Wales. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. It's a Wednesday, so let's head to the markets now. John Traeger has the Dublin sheep and cattle sale results. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Numbers remain similar as agents offered 4,000 lambs and 1,200 sheep. Quality was overall only fair, with the majority of the lambs lacking freshness and condition. Older lambs made up the bulk of the yarding this week, and these varied widely in type and condition. The usual trade and process of buyers were active, along with limited restock of demand. The best of the young lambs and older lambs lifted 5 to $8 per head, and more in an odd sale. However, secondary lambs eased a further 5 to $8 per head. 
Extremely light young lambs sold from 20 to 55, as lightweights range from 28 to 34. Trade lambs sold from 75 to 99, with heavy lambs ranging from 100 to 115. Extreme heavyweights sold from 112 to $115 per head. Extremely light older lambs sold from 3 to $42, as lightweights range from 19 to 66, with the light trade weights selling from 42 to 55. Trade lambs sold from 59 to 115, as heavyweights range from 110 to $114, with the few extreme heavyweights selling from 114 to the sale top of $144 per head. Hobbit sold from 20 to $75, as light ewe mutton range from 11 to 28. Heavy ewe sold from 10 to 36, with rams selling from $10 to $25 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, prices remained generally unchanged as agents offered 150 live weight and open auction cattle with the usual trade and process of buyers providing steady competition. Quality was again extremely mixed with the few ideal trade weights on offer. Villa steers sold from 142 to 168 cents, with Villa heifers ranging from 120 to 130. Yearling steers sold from 138 to 220, as yearling heifers ranged from 124 to 180 cents. Grown steers sold from 180 to 210 cents, with grown heifers ranging from 120 to 174 cents. Light cows sold from 60 to 70 cents. Medium weight sold from 120 with heavy cows selling from 80 to 144 cents. Bulls sold from 100 to 172 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger of the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks, John. And now to Peter Kerr. He has the latest from the Mount Gambier sale. Good afternoon, Peter. Good afternoon, Selena. This is the Mount Gambier cattle report for the 1st of November. Numbers more than doubled at Mount Gambier, eighteen scale of 1,285 head of live weight and open auction cattle. These sold to a larger field of trade and processor buyers, along with feeder and restocker interest. Quality was mixed with something to suit all orders in a mostly cheaper market. Feeders lost 15 cents as the steers sold from 145 to 248 cents to the trade. Similar heifers make it from 130 to 225. Restockers sought feeders from 130 to 212 cents a kilogram over both sexes. Yearling steers to the trade made from 180 to 220 cents. A similar heifers made from 132 to 214. Feeders operated over both sexes from 142 to 197 cents, with restockers also active from 133 to 200 cents a kilogram. Crown steers and bullocks eased up to six cents to range from 205 to 235 cents a trade buyers. Feeder activity from 193 to 228. Crown heifers made from 170 to 220 cents to the trade. As manufacturing steers returned from 170 to 187 cents to ease four cents a kilogram. Heavy cows lost eight cents to sell from 160 to 190 cents as lighter lots to the trade, range from 140 to 158 with feeder activity from 150 to 163 cents a kilogram. Bulls made from 165 to 210 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Peter. Now it is time to head off to the Weather Bureau. And our forecaster today is Jenny Horvat. Hello, Jenny. Good afternoon, Selena. Uh, we are already midway through the week. What is it looking like across South Australia today? Yeah, look, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Well, for most parts, it's actually pretty settled. So we've got our high-pressure system 
sitting south of the Bights, maintaining a ridge over the south. A little bit cloudy in the southeast and on some of our windward coast. Um, was a little bit cloudier earlier, but some of those are starting to break up. And then up in the very far northwest, we've got a bit of a trough poking in there, and we've seen a bit of thunderstorm activity up near the um, Northern Territory WA border. They seem to be sitting just on the other side of the NT border at the moment, but we couldn't rule out a little bit more activity during the, the afternoon and maybe um, a little bit more broadly across the um, WA border as we head into the later part of the day. was a little bit of a chilly start in parts this morning. Keith getting down to minus two degrees for a minimum temperature. Pathway um, half a degree and um, we saw one degree recorded at Rosewery for a minimum. So a little bit cool out there but we are looking at temperatures today generally around that sort of mild, um, cool to mild in the south but grading to warm to hot as we head inland. Hopefully tomorrow morning won't be quite as um, as cool winds shifting just slightly a little bit more easterly. Could see some early morning fog patches though about the, the southeast and we've got that trough of low pressure protruding a little bit further into the state on Thursday so maybe the chance of those um, isolated and sh um, possible thunderstorms a little bit more broadly across the north um, west pastoral district mostly staying north of Woomera and maybe pushing into the western parts of the northeast pastoral district there on the Thursday. On Friday, though, we'll see that trough uh, move northwards again, so only the slight chance of some dry thunderstorms about the far north of the northeast pastoral district on Friday. Again, um, remaining pretty dry elsewhere. Maybe on our far southern coast, a little bit of light shower activity, not out of the question, but we're really not expecting anything too significant with that. Just a couple of spots at best. On Saturday, we should be mostly dry throughout the, the state again. Again, only maybe a little bit of... Um, light precipitation against those far southern coasts but again not expecting anything too significant and just depending on that positioning of the trough whether we see some isolated showers and thunderstorms up in the far northwest on Saturday. Looking again pretty dry on the Sunday um, that high pressure system still sitting there in the bite sort of gets replaced the one from this week as we head into the weekend so again with that southeasterly couldn't rule out a little bit of that light precipitation again about those far southern coasts but again really just a spot or two at best um, and then on Monday we'll start to see the effects of another trough coming across from WA so showers and possible thunderstorms developing about the far northwest on Monday maybe on Tuesday that trough coming across just that little bit more so starting to see a little bit of that more across the WA border but still looking broadly west of Fowler's Bay on the Tuesday by Wednesday a little bit of uncertainty with the movement looks like it might get a little bit more of a progression of that trough maybe moving inland a little bit more but still mostly looks like most of that activity staying um, west of Sejuna but it is um, a bit of a watch this space to see how that trough um, evolves and how it moves in the middle of next week there mm. so um, yeah it's pretty stable with that high pressure system and temperatures generally um, we're looking at that mild to warm in the south grading to warm to hot to see us through the the week and into the weekend but then um, as we head into early next week we'll start to see um, temperatures on the rise a little bit more so generally becoming a little bit more on the warm to hot side throughout the state as we head into early to mid next week with just seeing those winds shifting a little bit more northerly um, next week um, um, with that high just moving across just that little bit more. But yeah, no, pretty pretty stable and mostly dry conditions coming up for the next week. So just having a bit of a look at the cumulative rainfall totals that we can expect 
up until midnight Sunday. So we are looking at generally just less than a couple of millimetres and that is mainly about the pastoral and west coast districts. We could see some isolated um, pop falls with those thunderstorms of around 5 to 15 millimetres but they will be pretty isolated if we do see those falls at all and about our far southern coast really just less than a a millimetre at best just a a few nuisance spots around Mm. Selena. Yeah thanks for that Jenny have a great rest of your day. No worries thank you. Jenny Horvat our duty forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. Uh, Now the Forecast for the western inland of New South Wales. For tomorrow for the upper western district, sunny with south to southeasterly winds, 15 to 25 k's now, becoming light in the middle of the day before becoming southerlies, 15 to 20 k's now in the late afternoon. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 11 and 15 degrees with daytime temps reaching around 30. For the lower western district, mostly sunny tomorrow with south to southeasterly winds, 15 to 20 k's now, becoming light in the middle of the day and then becoming southerlies, 20. Uh, 15 to 20 k's now in the early afternoon. Overnight temperatures there down to around 9 in the day. They'll climb up to around 30 degrees. It's half past 12 here on the Country Hour. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. And good afternoon. Now, I know a lot of you are concerned about the threat of varroa mite to Australia's bees and the industries that rely on them. South Australia has just announced a new advisory committee to address the threat of varroa to our state, and shortly you'll hear more about what its role is in helping keep it out. Also coming up, the government wants to hit reset on the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Our Senate inquiry underway this week is looking at the revamped plan. We understand some South Australians are using submissions as part of that, but that uh, revamped plan includes water buyback. So how likely are South Australian irrigators to sell their water entitlements? There are, unfortunately, a number of, I wouldn't call them willing sellers, I'd say nearly desperate or exodus so with some pressure on wine grapes and even a couple of the other industry groups at the moment there are people that are exiting so they might look to cash out of their water simply because they've walked away from the vineyard or pushed it out or sold it. You'll hear from a water broker about some of the different reasons why people may uh, be willing to sell their water back to the government. That's all still to come that's all after we get headlines from Matt Coleman. Hello Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, emergency services have resumed searching for the body of a surfer believed to have been killed in a shark attack on the far west coast. The alarm was raised at 10.30 yesterday morning, with reports a 55-year-old man was attacked while surfing at a beach locally known as the Granites, a popular surf break close to Streaky Bay. Witnesses have described the shark to be a great white, about four metres in length. The state government has secured the support of the Greens to pass its next wave of rental law reforms through Parliament. Under the changes, minimum notice periods will be extended from 28 to 60 days. Prescribed reasons to end a tenancy will be introduced, while conditions around having pets will also be bonafide. 
And the number of South Australians placed in public guardianship increased by more than 13% last financial year. Public advocate Anne Gale says the NDIS and a Supreme Court judgment are the main reasons for the rise in recent years. She says housing has emerged as the greatest challenge for people under guardianship, with many caught in cycles of eviction and homelessness. More news at one o'clock. Thanks to those headlines, Matt. Matt Coleman there. Well, South Australia is preparing itself for the potential arrival of Varroa mite, the parasite that has now spread within hives in parts of New South Wales. Now, nationally, it's been decided that eradication of this deadly mite is no longer possible, so instead the plan is to manage its spread. Well, the New South Australian Varroa Industry Advisory Committee has just been announced. I'm joined by the Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven. Welcome to the Country Hour. Thanks for having me, Selena. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the role of the board in the moment, but I guess uh, people would be keen to get some clarification. Uh, there, at this stage, we have not had any notified cases of Varroa here in South Australia as yet? That's absolutely right. So it's still confined to New South Wales, which is where it originated. So uh, unfortunately, in September, the decision was made nationally that eradication of Varroa mite in Australia was no longer feasible. And so we have had to move to a management phase. So there's work that's happening nationally on that. uh, And we also have been doing a lot of work here in South Australia. And the feedback we've had from industry is that they would really like to have uh, a new advisory committee dedicated to this, which will include representatives from recreational beekeepers, from the commercial apiarists, um, the Honeybee Industry Council, which is the national body, as well as representatives from large commercial beekeepers and the pollination-dependent industries. Because, of course, this is not just about bees, but uh, industries, particularly, for example, almonds, uh, that rely on pollination from bees for them to be able to uh, continue and thrive. So the the mindset, I guess, going into forming a board like this is that it is an inevitability that we will have Varroa in South Australia at some stage. So let's be prepared for that. Look, it's, it is about being prepared. It's also about keeping Varroa uh, out for as long as possible. So both of those things. Um, so we really need to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to keep it out of South Australia. For example, you can't bring in bee products and uh, equipment, I should say, across the border without a permit. So there's all sorts of things already in place. But we do need to be able to prepare the industry uh, for if it does come into South Australia and make sure that um, you know, those most affected have as much preparation, have as much, have as much support as uh, we possibly can. So as it stands, is there any sort of plan that currently exists for if an outbreak was reported today in a certain location, what the response here in South Australia would be? So we'd be acting under existing protocols. So there's a number of nationally agreed responses that occur. And so we would act under those. But of course, we do have the uh, capacity to make local adjustments to that. But there's a reasonable level of confidence at the moment that we're not expecting there to be an outbreak today. Uh, And we certainly hope that's the case. Uh, But we do need to make sure that in addition to keeping it out, we are prepared for uh, and are able to educate beekeepers about what's needed. So um, just in general, all beekeepers, whether they're recreational or commercial, should be inspecting their hives regularly to to look for any sort of signs of grower mite uh, or indeed any other exotic pests. And there are things that we've been encouraging beekeepers to use, such as the, the alcohol wash test. Uh, that people can find out information about that and about how to care for hives uh, on the PERSA website just by typing in Varroa on that website. 
Now, this new board that you uh, have established, uh, what will essentially its its role be and how do you see it feeding into that planning and preparation? Yeah, so because it does represent uh, recreational and commercial and some of the big individual commercial beekeepers, in addition to the expertise around environmental impacts and, uh, and technical advice, uh, it should be able to provide a really good cross-section across industry. So that will enable us to look at not just what's needed to be done on a technical level, but what the impacts of that might be on people's businesses or on their recreational beehives. So all of that input is incredibly important so that you know, there aren't decisions made that might have uh, unknown or un- unintended consequences. So I'm really pleased that, the, uh, that there's been so much enthusiasm to be involved in in this so that we can get really good advice and expertise and insight to, to help PERSA as PERSA goes on uh, developing the response plan. And as you touched on earlier, I mean, ideally, the longer it can be kept out of the state, the better. There are protections and there are regulations in place to try and um, stop that from happening in the first place? Yes, that's right. So we've had various um, border controls uh, for some time. Remembering that this first detection um, at Newcastle in New South Wales was in June of last year. So we have been dealing with it for some time. Uh, and they do get updated, which is why I'd always encourage people to have a look at the PERSA website. But there are restrictions on what you can bring into the state and you need to apply for a permit for that. So we also appreciate, um, you know, sometimes when those permits are applied for, it does take a little while because we are looking to be very, very uh, robust in decision-making process. So I'd also like to extend uh, my appreciation to beekeepers who have been patient, I guess, uh, in, uh, in dealing with this and in working through these processes. Minister Scriven, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks for having me. As the Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven. Well, sticking with Varroa mite for a moment, because it's now been more than a month since the Varroa mite eradication strategy was abandoned as authorities agreed to move to a management phase. So how's it working and what does it mean for beekeepers and those in the industry that rely on bees for pollination? Well, Angus Verley spoke with Peter MacDonald. He's president of the Victorian Farmers Federation's beekeeping branch. Where we are right at the moment, so there's no official... Um, transition to management plan came out, so so no program has yet been put out um, for everyone to to approve. And so the process is is going through that. There's a lot of people that have been involved, um, and, and industry groups, um, all all the people that depend, all the groups and industries that depend on bees for pollination and the honeybees, and the state and federal governments have all been involved in the, this response from day one. Um, so they've got to sit down and agree to a plan. This is how we're going to transition the, the honeybee and, and the pollination-reliant industries um, to living with life with Varroa. Uh, so they've got to come up with a plan, then they've all got to agree to that plan, and, they, and then that can be rolled out. Um, so we're, we're still waiting on that to happen. The New South Wales DPI, as the lead agency, will be developing a plan up, put it to all the other parties, and then they'll go through an official process to actually negotiate that plan and then agree to it. And then, of course, everyone will put in money. So all the industry groups involved and all the all the governments will, will share in, in funding this program, which will, should go for a, for a two- or three-year period. While that official process is still happening, um, at the moment, beekeepers um, and, and other people within the industry, our supplier groups and whatnot, are all getting ready. Um, there's, there's chemicals that have come online that have been approved through the uh, APVMA, 
um, governments have actually sourced a whole um, heap of approved chemicals now and, uh, and they're helping to make sure that the beekeepers have good access to it and it's not a restricted supply. So beekeepers can actually access the chemicals free. Um, all they need to do is test that their hives um, show that they've actually got varroa mite to a level that they need to treat and then they'll be able to get the chemicals for free. And of course, Varroa has only been found in New South Wales at this point in time. So so at this stage, it hasn't spread any further than New South Wales, and we'll see how that pans out over the next period. Okay, Peter, a few questions there. Those chemicals, those miticides, how how effective are they? They're quite effective. Um, they're, they're chemicals that are they're widely used across the world and very effective. And and so they're, you know, they're, they're up to the 80 to 95% efficacy um, in terms of killing the mite uh, and not killing the bees. So, so they're very, very effective. What's the situation with the borders at the moment? Because obviously this is what concerns those industries that rely on, on bee, uh, bees for pollination, almonds particularly, that, that relies on that movement of bees across borders. What's the situation with both the New South Wales and South Australian borders? For us here in Victoria, they're the, they're the main two borders that occur, mind you. The, the Queensland border, so transshipment of, of bees or, or shipment of bees, especially queen bees from Queensland. Queensland and New South Wales are the major states that supply queens around Australia or especially on the eastern seaboard. So, so for Victoria, we can we can get bees in from New South Wales to Victoria. Um, we can take bees into South Australia and return. Um, there is restrictions, though. It's not a, just a free travel. So there is permits that you do have to apply for before you move bees, and you do have to be approved uh, before you can travel. Within Australia, we've got beekeeping everywhere, and beekeeping is truly a, a national industry within Australia especially the professional beekeeping, we do need to move our bees to in order to keep them alive because there's not enough flowers to, to stay in the one place. And just finally, Peter, weighing up everything we've just talked about, how do you feel about what, what the future holds for the industry? Future is going to be very exciting for the beekeeping industry, Angus. We've all got to decide as beekeepers as to whether we're prepared for this game. Um, we're the last country in the world without Baroa. Uh, we've got it now. No other um, country has been able to keep it out or stop it from moving across the country once it got in. So we've all got to just realise that um, we will get Varroa. Um, it's just a matter of time and uh, and so we've got to be prepared for that. And that's the key thing that I think for every beekeeper and, and every industry and business out there that supports beekeeping is we've got to be prepared. Don't be scared about it. It's coming. Just be prepared for it. So as long as we're prepared, we'll be, we'll be fine. Um, it will require extra work and, and extra effort and extra cost on beekeepers to actually maintain the health of the hive as we would now, um, sort of pre-Varroa. So it will be harder to do, but we can still do it. And, and as every other country in the world has shown us that there is life after Varroa, uh, we've just got to change the way we do it. So we've got to be flexible, nimble and be prepared. And um, and, and we can still do this and, and have a highly effective and efficient honeybee industry within Australia. That was Central Victoria beekeeper Peter McDonald. Uh, it's from the Victorian Farmers Federation. They're speaking with Angus Verley. This text that's come in on the text line, no name it, it says... Bureaucracy and bureaucrats are essential and wonderful. I don't think they will fix the varroa mite problem, says our texter. Last year, ABC Gives raised an amazing $1.5 million for Australians in need. This year, we're teaming up again with our charity partners to raise that amount and more to help people in your local community struggling to cope with rising living costs. 
There's big need out there and Australians have big hearts and generous spirits. So join with us and help brighten your community. ABC Gives. Head to abc.net.au slash gives to donate today. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And you're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Well, the federal government's legislation to reset the Murray-Darling Basin Plan will soon go to the Senate, where it will need votes from crossbenchers to pass. And it's being examined in a Senate inquiry this week. The Basin Plan revamp extends the deadline for the plan by two years, which will give time for states to develop projects that will save water in exchange for money from the federal government and support for more water buybacks. Warwick Long has this report. Victoria is the state that refuses to sign up to that deal because the state opposes more water buybacks. And that was put to the test today. South Australian Commissioner for the River Murray, Richard Beasley SC, was in front of the Senators first up today, criticising Victoria's position under evidence. Victoria has its position. Victoria's position, as best I understand it, is we're against this because buybacks do tremendous damage. Now, they assert that. And they rely on uh, economic evidence that other economists have doubts about. I do think you've got to be... In the end, you've got to make your decisions about the impacts of buybacks on data, right, and economic analysis. That's not me saying that people that actually live in the basin and that are fearful or have seen negative outcomes from the purchase of water, of which undoubtedly there were some, shouldn't be heard, that they should. Um, I don't live in the Murray-Darling Basin and I don't blithely um, just say, well, bad luck. You know, we've got to recover this water. If it impacts you, it's bad luck. That's not how I feel. Mm. Uh, If there are any proven substantial negative outcomes from the recovery of water, the government should step in and have adjustment compensation measures. I've always thought that. But having said that, this is a massive... The Water Act Basin Plan is just a massive environmental economic reform. It's going to have positive and it's going to have negatives and it's for government to manage that, not me. That's the South Australian Commissioner for the River Murray, Richard Beasley, uh, speaking before that Senate inquiry, which is underway, as I said, this week. Well, 250 irrigators across New South Wales and Queensland are apparently willing to sell their water entitlements to the Commonwealth. That is according to the Federal Water Minister, who this week said it signalled their water buybacks are a necessary and feasible tool to meet key environmental water targets as part of this revamped Murray-Darling Basin plan. But irrigators say the issue is nuanced and requires scrutiny. Emily Pavlich has this report. It was a busy day in basin politics yesterday, with Federal Water Minister releasing figures showing irrigators are willing to sell double the amount of water that the Commonwealth had put out to tender. The Federal Government announced news they've received 250 responses for voluntary water purchasing or water buybacks from a tender put out in March. Offers for water have been accepted in the New South Wales border rivers, Namoy, Lachlan and Murray catchments, as well as the condomine Ballon in Queensland. The water recovery is part of 49 gigalitres of water in the Bridging the Gap program. Chair of the National Irrigators Council and Mullamine farmer Jeremy Morton has opposed the introduction of water buybacks due to its effect on regional economies. He says if there was alternative viable industries, they would already be in place. 
it's really just an exercise in trying to manage the transition. The reality is there will just be less people, less economic activity, you know, the schools, the hospitals, they just don't have the, the people coming they don't have the, the staffing requirements. They slowly get defunded because, you know, there's not as many people there. It's, it, it's a slippery slope to, to economic decline. He says the New South Wales Murray Catchment's 10 gigalitre contribution towards the Bridging the Gap program is small and so isn't indicative of what socio-economic impacts there could be when more water is bought. That's just the Bridging the Gap water. That's the 46 gigalitres that the government um, just run that process over the last six months or so. What they do from this point on, we're talking about not 10 gigalitres here or there, we're potentially talking 700 gigalitres. Meanwhile, left-wing think tank the Australia Institute yesterday also published a new report stating that only 10% of respondents oppose voluntary water buybacks and that support was split between metro areas and the regions. Mr Morton rejects this, saying that the framing of the question has a big impact on people's responses. If people don't understand what that actually means by supporting it or not supporting it, if you ask them a different way and said, would you support um, removing the economic base from rural communities is going to impact them into the future permanently, you might get a very different answer. Conservationist and stone fruit grower in Naya in northwest Victoria, Peter Thornton, says increased permanent plantings and therefore higher water demand is impacting the price of water. She says water buybacks is not the only factor affecting the price of water. It is one that will have a public good. So, you know, this is a long-term reform. It's in the national interest. Will there be some impact on some short-term impact in Basin communities? Perhaps but I think it's well and truly outweighed by the positive impact. And through the Productivity Commission interim report, you can see that that is potentially not going to happen unless we see those these strong commitments that you know the current government is making. Ms Thornton says more water in lakes and rivers in her patch of northern Victoria would help when dry conditions persist. You would see less fish kills, for example, which have been something that happened in the last five years across the basin in unprecedented numbers. So, you know, and that's happened despite us having this national plan for the Murray-Darling Basin. The Productivity Commission has released an interim report into a five-year review of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. The report blasted the progress of the environmental reforms within the plan. It also pointed to weak accountability and insufficient funding. Community consultation for the interim report found there's a strong expectation that Basin governments will put in place better ways of working with local communities. That was reporter Emil Pavlich speaking there with Naya conservationist and stone fruit grower Peter Thornton and chair of the National Irrigators Council, Jeremy Morton. You're with Selena Green. It's just going on nine minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Well, here in South Australia, a water broker says some irrigators would never sell their water, while others may sell out of desperation or for the right price. As we just heard, nearly 250 irrigators in the Northern Basin have registered with the Murray-Darling Basin water buyback tender, but the federal government hasn't revealed what it's willing to pay. Riverland Lending Services Executive Director Jeff McDonald says the high security water in South Australia makes it a different situation compared with other states. Keep in mind that um, we are high security in the Riverland. We're all high security water here. So when uh, the government or the basin go out to different valleys, uh, they're potentially talking to people that have low or general allocations, which means that there's 
quite a few years where they don't get any allocations or they get restricted. So it is a different water value. So you might be talking $2,000 a megalitre in low and general security interstate, whereas you're talking seven dollars to $8,000 a megalitre in South Australia for high security. So I do caution that, you know, an overarching view on who's willing to sell water is sometimes, you know, comes back to their perceived value of it. But what I am seeing in uh, the Riverland is, is basically three groups three groups of water and you know all the talk about the 450 gig buyback one of the things that sits in the back of my mind is any model that might roll out in the future you've got to have willing sellers and you know the information you know on that there are some out there I'm not so sure about the Riverland and my take on those three groups are you have larger family and even corporate operations the value of their investment into their orchard or vineyard or whatever it is is huge and they actually they'll never sell their water that's you know required to maintain the value of their asset produce income over a long period of time return to investors provide succession that's one group there are unfortunately a number of i wouldn't call them willing sellers i'd say nearly desperate or exodus so with some pressure on wine grapes and even a couple of the other industry groups at the moment there are people that are exiting so they might look to cash out of their water simply because they've walked away from the vineyard or pushed it out or sold it there are some there selling selling very small parcels to pay the bills to buy time to get through you know maybe a bit of bank pressure so they're the call them the desperate sellers and that's off the back of the economic conditions of their industry nothing to do with water um it's the middle group and the middle group are the ones that I bump into on a semi-regular basis. They're sound financially. Their commodity type goes up and down. They're sitting on a reasonable amount of water. And they often make comment to me, you know, when water hits X amount of dollars, if buybacks come in and it gets to ten or $12,000 a megalitre, I'm selling. The trouble is that some of those people told me that they'd sell at 7000 a megalitre and we're going past that and they haven't sold. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and they're really discretionary sellers that might be looking at the water as an asset that's increased in value and therefore there's a time to cash in. A bit like just an investment decision, really. Um, And yeah, so that's what's yet to be found out. Because, yeah, the federal government hasn't yet put a, even though they say they've gotten double the number of willing sellers elsewhere in the basin for buybacks, they haven't really put a, a price on it yet because no. they don't want to affect the current water market. But, you know, yeah, is there a price that you think people would be willing to sell it for? But you said that sort of fluctuated over time, hasn't it? Well, well this is what I'll explain to you, Eliza, is what I call layman terms of how this might roll out. So we're assuming the bill gets passed, the government enter into buybacks, and then they've got to go through the process of buybacks. So I can recall, and dealing with a lot of people back at the end of the millennium drought, so we're probably talking here around the... 2010, either side of that, when uh, they entered into buybacks. Since then, they've stopped buybacks and they've gone through efficiency programs and other mechanisms to get the water. But the buyback system then, uh, and like I said, this is layman, so don't quote me. Well, sorry, don't sue me. (laughs) What I would say is the one thing they can't do under ACCC law is they can't influence the market. They can't actually name a price. They can't go out there and put a premium on it and name the price and distort the market. You know, that my understanding is that's actually against the law. Now, again, I'm not a lawyer, so that's just my understanding. So mm-hmm. if I look back to the last time they did buybacks, the process is basically go out, they have a round, they open it up and they say, we've got X amount of water we've got to get, we've got a bucket of money, put it in your offers. So they actually ask people to tender up their water and name the price. Oh, so that's how it worked last price. time. Well, that's how it worked. You know, 13 years ago, and in the ability to not distort 
the market. So what I recall happening there, and we were talking at the time between 1,500 and 2,200 a megalitre for high security water. And what I remember there is the general market value was, say, 1,700. I knew people that would put their tender in at 2,000 to try and get a premium out of it, some at 2,200. And then at the end of each round, the government would choose, obviously, the lowest tenders to get maximum water for their money on taxpayers' money. And they would choose and they cut it off at a point so they got what they wanted and so those that went too high missed out. But then they might have another round and go through it again and of course the range of price might change again. So we're talking about a scenario. So when again, when we talk about getting real, if we're two or three years down the track and we are in buybacks, then that's the system that's been used in the past and if we had that again, then it really gets down to what is the water value then? Have we been dry? Are we in a drought? Are we in a dry spell? Are we wet again? What's the demand? You know, have our industries changed? You know, so what's that whole supply-demand mechanism? And then you get scenarios of people that are going to throw their water in and name their own price. All I keep thinking of is if people are sitting there wanting a 20 to 30% premium on what might be market value of their water, for high-security water, that's going to be a lot of money. Mm. <laughs> My calculator doesn't go past the billions of how much money it would take to get 450 gig at those sorts of amounts. So this is where obviously it gets complicated as to how it might roll out. Absolutely, and that's what the Productivity Commission has, has noted, that more voluntary buybacks would be needed to meet the target for the plan, but that there's probably not enough funding for, no, <laughs> to foot the no. bill for that. No, and this is the irony of this is obviously there's a lot of emotion and I've, you know, I'm trying to be balanced on my view on everything here. Um, a lot of emotion in impact on socioeconomic communities with less water and the threat on employment in towns like the Riverland. If we had water pressure back onto some of our industries at the moment, then that creates job pressures, at packing sheds and wineries and places like that. So they're the impacts that we've traditionally tried to manage. But cutting through all that, if we get to a buyback situation, you've just got two simple factors here. You've got to have willing sellers, and then you've got to have the money. So if the bucket of money is tight or limited in some way, and the willing sellers are limited, then, you know, again, I just wonder, with a looking forward as to how this is even going to work. As Riverland Lending Services Executive Director Jeff McDonald, and he was speaking there to Eliza Berlage. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. On the way to the drop zone, you think of everything that can go wrong. What if the parachute doesn't work? Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. I remember jumping and free fall. There's so much information going into your mind. I remember landing going, what just happened? That was just insane. I never thought I could do that. Hear the latest conversations weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Now, don't forget, if you want to keep across all of the latest news coming out of the fantastic ABC Rural team, a great way to keep across that is on the ABC Rural website. So go to abc.net.au forward slash rural. There's also great content on there, including if you're wanting to read a little bit more and understand um, all of the discussion around Australia walking away from this uh, potential trade deal with the European Union. There's a great explainer piece on the website right now that you can go and have a look at. Uh, you can also catch up with anything you may have missed on the country hour who'd like to go back and re-listen to it and find lots of other great ABC audio content on the ABC Listen app. It's a free app. You can go download that right now onto your smartphone or your tablet. Go and have a rustle around in there and have a play while you're at it. Uh, It is coming up to one o'clock. Thanks so much for your company today. I've been Selena Green and I'll be back again with you tomorrow.
Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.